Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 71. I have a special guest in the studio with me today. Hi, Veronica. Hello. How's everybody doing? I'm sure everybody's going to be doing great when they uh, see how awesome this episode is going to be, because I was really <laughs> looking forward to this one um, ever since we started talking about it. So uh, Tom is on vacation today, so um, he's not able Lucky to him. join us. Um, but we are going to talk about retro home lab gear or retro home labs. I didn't know what to call it, but it's just retro stuff. And I figured, you know, with, with um, over 70 episodes in, I think it's time to, to have a little bit of fun. And I also learned that retro home labs is a real thing. There's a Reddit for it, actually. Mm -hmm. So, um, all right. So just want to take a moment to mention the sponsor, Linode, who was gracious enough to sponsor this podcast for basically the majority of the life of this podcast. I think there might have been one or two episodes. I don't know how many. But uh, Linode is, has been um, all for this podcast ever since we announced we were going to be doing it. And this podcast is hosted on Linode, as is my entire, you know, the web-facing portion of my channel, Learn Linux TV, is also on Linode. They're a sponsor because we actually use them. They have a great dashboard, um, easy to use billing. So it's not like other cloud providers out there where it's like learning Dungeons and Dragons is easier than understanding just their billing component. Uh, Linode is totally not like that. It's easy to use. It's straightforward. And some people might be wondering, why are you talking about um, Linode, a cloud provider on a podcast that's mostly for self-hosted? Well, Linode is basically the ultimate DMZ. You could basically, anything you're, that's web facing can be placed there or whatever other reason you could think of, your own VPN server, for example. You could play around with WireGuard, set up a NextCloud server. There's definitely a lot of carryover, and it's been a, a great relationship. So thank you to Linode for sponsoring yet another episode. We really appreciate it. So it's time to talk about retro home lab, but um, I'm just going to live vicariously through this moment because I don't have my gaming channel yet. I don't know when or when I'll set that up. But I just want to take a moment to just put my Atari Jaguar in this spotlight here for the people that are watching this and my virtual boy also, because I don't really get a chance to show off my retro gear. I'm not going to really spend any time talking about those since they're gaming consoles. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we're going to be talking about retro computers. So, Veronica, you did a really awesome video with a really awesome commercial in it, by the way, that you did yourself. As the, as the set, um, all about the Commodore 64, and that video did very well. I enjoyed it, as did many others. So we figured we'd have you on. So for people well, that don't know about your channel and your video, why don't you go ahead and just tell them about it? Okay, well, it's it's fantastic to be here. This is very exciting. I, I don't think I've done a podcast before. So this is the really? first one. It's it's wow. kind of fun. Um, we'll we'll figure out how it works. Um, my name's Veronica. I do Veronica Explains. And uh I did a video a little bit ago where I explained a little bit about uh how networking worked in that uh the eight-bit era, the classic period of time when uh, machines like the Commodore 64 reigned supreme. And we, what we did in the video was we actually got a Commodore 64 online onto the modern internet using a couple of different mechanisms. Uh, one which closely replicates the experience that we had 
uh, back in the day getting onto BBSs, so terminals and that sort of thing, which was exciting. But then the other way was with a special cartridge called the 64 NIC Plus uh, that actually incorporates the TCP IP stack and allows you to actually surf the web on your Commodore 64. So not parsing it off to like a Raspberry Pi or something like that, but like actually having the, the 64 run it. It was slow. <laughs> it's, it, there's not a lot you can do. There's not a lot you can do with it. Um, but it's an exciting cartridge for some of the other things you can do with it, like uh, backing up disks over the network and and all that, which we did not cover in the video because it was 22 minutes long and I didn't, I didn't want to make it too long. But in a future video, I might do some more like, internal networking with your Commodore 64 just to just to have fun with that. It was so awesome. I mean, I love old computers, but what's really, I don't want to say sad because it's it's fine, um, even though it sounds bad. I didn't even have my first computer until I was 19, so I missed out on all of that. So I didn't have a Commodore 64. I mean, how many other tech YouTubers out there have you heard that's like, yeah, I started on the Commodore 64 or... Mm -hmm you know, TRS-80 or any of these others. And, you know, that's really cool. But, you know, by the time I started, you know, that, that stuff has already come and gone. So I really enjoy the retro technology, especially now, because it's a way for me to go back and kind of see how things were. The retro gaming collection I have also kind of helps with that too, because we deal with some of the same issues, like uh, trying to figure out how to display the computer on a high definition TV. Right. That's not always the funnest thing. But then in your video, it's like, you made the Commodore 64 go online, which um, I think is brilliant. And it's a lot of fun because it's, you know, not something that you immediately think about. Right. Well, thank you. I, I'm I'm glad you liked it. It, it. it seems like the comments are pretty positive with it. Like people seem to think this kind of idea is cool. So I'm probably going to do a few more in the future with some of the other systems. I got a VIC-20 sitting right there, but then I've also got my Amiga 500 right here. Oh, wow. And that's, I, I can imagine getting both online in the relatively near future as a follow-up would be kind of a, a fun video. Um, for me personally, my first, ret like my first forays into computers weren't actually the Commodore family at all. Mine was uh, the 286. That was my hmm. first computer. Um, the Commodore 64 was already pretty old hat by the time I really started getting into it. Um, but my family has some history with the Commodore 64, including, uh, one of my grandparents was actually, um, a circuit board designer. And so was working on stuff for the Commodore environment. And I ended up finding a bunch of her old books at one point, And it was like, I, I gotta, I gotta get into this. And it just, the bug kind of hit me a few years ago. And it's like, I, I just, I have to have more. My mom actually learned yeah. basic on a VIC-20 and wow. that was, uh, that was right before I was born. And she then, as I was growing up with like the 286 and then eventually the 386 and the 486 and higher stuff, she was always teaching me basic. <laughs> so that was actually my first language. And, um, it just kind of grew from there and I ended up making a career out of it. So like so many of us do, I think. I think it, it's something to be said about a, a passion project turning into a, um, a full-time job. Um, and by the way, I just want to throw this out there. For anyone who hasn't seen this particular video yet, 
um, even though it's not a Linux video, I have this domain, I have a URL shortener. So um, th this is really easy. So even those of you that are listening, you don't have to pull over if you're driving and jot this down because it's pretty easy to remember. If you go to linux.video slash c64 hyphen online, again, that's linux.video slash c64 hyphen online. It goes right to your video. So that way they don't have to remember that long URL or, or wait until the you know, it's in the show notes or whatever. Um, Cause with Tom on vacation, I'm not really sure like um, when this will be posted, it'll probably still be posted around the same time for those of you not listening live. Um, but that video was a lot of fun. And I also look forward to more uh, of, of the same as I'm sure many of your fans do. And if anyone hasn't checked out your channel, Veronica explains, they should absolutely do that because I I'm calling it now. It's going to be huge. It's going to be ginormous. So well, I thank you, and thank you for making the short URL. That was that was super helpful. Um, it's 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 given me ideas for how I can do short URLs in the future. We can so, talk after, and I can. Yeah, I can we'll have to talk after about that because <laughs> that that's going to be a ton of fun. I yep. I recently bought a new domain, thinking ahead for short URLs, so it's a short domain. So we'll see if it works. So one one topic that. I feel like, you know, because I'm just getting started when it comes to uh, retro computers. I have a, I do have a couple of stories that are related that I can share, but I haven't really had a chance to get into it yet. But there's some overlap between, you know, the fact that I collect retro gaming gear and, you know, with older computers. They're, they're both computers. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to say one is and one isn't. It's just that oh, one mm -hmm. has a purpose for gaming. But shelf life is a big problem. And I don't think there's a really easy answer because I know on your video, I, I'm pretty sure there was a floppy disk emulator or something that had the images on there because yes, um, I wanted to get to find the wizardry disks. The, the wizardry series is something I don't think a lot of people know about. It's an old uh, PC game series before we had Elder Scrolls or any of those other things. And and I think it might have might predate Might and Magic possibly around the same time as Ultima started, just to give anyone who knows what I'm talking about a time frame. Um, and th that game was released, or the series of games was released on floppy disks. And I could find it on eBay right now. I don't know if it'll work if I plug it in or insert the disk, but um, there's something to be said about having the physical media. But then in your video, I think you had like a, it was a floppy disk emulator. Um, That's right. I yeah. use the Pi 1541. I actually have it in a bin over here. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I I have bins. There's when when you collect retro computers, you have bins. <laughs> There's lots of stuff in bins. Oh, but yeah. um, the uh, the Pi 1541 is my personal favorite uh, floppy disk emulator project on the Commodore 64. Um, the benefit to it is that it is a cycle exact emulation of the original 1541 floppy disk which if you don't know, a lot of games and other uh, utilities used the 1541 floppies flaws, used its problems to actually implement things like copy protection or some other features, um, took advantage of it for loaders or you know that sort of thing. And so if you're using some other replacement that's not cycle exact, you can actually run into issues. And the 1541 on the Commodore 64 is, I mean, the, I, I'll go into it some other time, but it is a fascinating thing because it's like its own computer inside 
the disk drive. You know, we think we tend to think of a disk drive as being like a peripheral where the your computer, the main computer does all the work or at least the processing work, but on the mm -hmm. 1541, it actually has its own processor and computer and operating system inside it. And emulating that in a precise way can be a bit of a challenge. And that's the mm -hmm. Raspberry Pi is a perfect fit for it without ruining, you know, a whole lot of these floppy disks. So that's that's yep. an excellent option if you can do it. And if you have a Raspberry Pi, you can actually build one yourself, a, a 1541, or you can buy them from a number of locations. They're pretty sweet. Yeah, that's a really great idea. And, and um, the more I dive into this, the, the more I realize, especially when you read about the history, how much the timing matters. And it's more than you think. It's like, think about how much you think it might matter and times that by 10. And that's probably half as important as timing actually is. Because if you think about, um, let's just say emulation, you might think, well, we have solid state on everything nowadays. We have micro SD cards that, that um, can hold, I don't know, 100,000, a million floppy disks or something like that on, on one little tiny chip that's you know smaller than your thumbnail. And, you know, one school of thought is that, okay, it's going to load like super quick. No, um, you, you can, but the computer and the operating system took that timing into effect. And that's even um, relevant now when you have newer game systems that are backwards compatible with older game disks, where you might think, well, this new game system has a really amazing processor and it's just going to load this game a lot faster sometimes. But, but if it loads it, fast then it's not ready and it just literally has to be completely recoded in order yes. for that to function which is really strange when you think about it but then with the more you read about it like if you read about mist have you ever read about the development behind the original mist uh, you know i i played a bit of mist um it wasn't it wasn't exactly my cup of tea when it came out but i've been meaning to revisit it I have played it. I will say that my ADHD prevents me from playing it for too long. But um, when I read about it, or actually I watched a video, they were talking about the development of it. Um, technically, Mist was impossible when it came out. You, it could not be done. There was no way to make Mist because each of the areas, the which are mostly static images, but for the time higher resolution, um, if you're moving through areas, it has to load a new image. But that takes a very long time on a single speed CD-ROM drive that cannot load the images fast enough for the player to not just get tired of it and walk away. So they had to do some trickery to preload and do this, do that to make it seem like it was loading everything spontaneously quick. Nowadays, obviously, it's easy. But um, that entire game was built on the timing of the media on which it was released. So mm -hmm. that, that's a huge thing for sure. The timing is is a huge thing and yep. one i remember it was a 3d pong game for dos i don't even remember the name of it somebody probably remembers but i had this 3d pong game that i loved on my 386 and then at some point i upgraded to like a pentium 3 and i managed to get into the shell and i started to load it and it didn't work at all. The, the, the time, it was so fast that it was unplayable. And I, I had such a hard time wrapping my head around it as, you know, like a kid, the kid I was. And I ended up looking it up or asking 
somebody who knew and they were explaining, oh, it's because the developer of this game must have used the CPU clock as the, as the timing mechanism for the yep. game. And so your CPU is 300 times faster. So it's going to play 300 times faster and you, <laughs> you got to get them to recode the game if you want to keep playing it. And yep. not only did that give me an appreciation for how far we've come, but it also gave me an appreciation for open source because in that moment it was like, well, gee, if I had the source code, I might be able to reprogram the thing, yep. <laughs> which was uh, a lesson I learned later on in, or a lesson I took with me later on in life, which was exciting. Yeah, some of the source code that I've seen for like NES games, I mean, some of this older stuff was written on assembler and, and it's just not something that I can do, but um, speaking of Pentium 3, I had a fun experiment because my first computer was a Pentium 3 that I that I owned. And um, I was curious what came before. So I came into possession of Windows 3.1 floppies and also DOS 6.11, I think it was. And mm -hmm. I came into possession of this. So I had a spare 500 gig hard drive or something at the time uh not 500 no i think it was 500 megabytes actually at the time not gigabytes. Oh. that would have been that would have been a, if it was 500 gigabytes at the time that would have been more expensive but it was i think it was 500 megabytes i also had like a one and a half gigabyte drive and i decided to install dos as a dual boot on this pen sure. three so Windows 3.1, I don't remember how many floppies it had. So what I did was I, 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 it had a floppy drive. So I just created a folder and I, one by one, I just grabbed the contents of the floppy disks and I just dumped them all into the same folder. Then I burned it onto a CD. Then I went into DOS and I decided to install Windows 3.1. So when I did, I have never seen a Windows install go so fast in my entire life. Um, it was literally probably 10 seconds. And that progress bar is like zip and it was done. And then, because I mean, who'd have thought, you know, Windows 3.1 running on a Pentium 3. I mean, it, it's a horrible thing to run on a Pentium 3. There's not really a whole lot you could do with it, but I just wanted to see if you could do it. And it was just hilarious to see the progress bar just jump straight to the end. And um, uh -huh. then of course I had to load SimCity because why wouldn't you load SimCity? Oh yeah, no, of course. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a class. I love SimCity. Jeez, um, yep. I could play SimCity. I... I at some point, I I like I don't know if slow TV is a thing with certain games. Like I don't do much for retro gaming on mm -hmm. YouTube, but like I would love to do a long play of SimCity one day. <laughs> just just kind of go through because it's one of my favorites. Now you you mentioned assemblers and people were coding mm -hmm. an assembly back that I have. This is like the canonical book on machine language for the Commodore 64 and you know the PET and some of these other things. It's by Jim Butterfield and it's called Machine Language for the Commodore 64 and Other Computers. And I, I'm going through this right now. This book actually belonged to my grandmother um, way back when. So it's it's been handed down through the generations, but I'm, I'm actually teaching myself machine language right now um, because I, I do think the appreciation and the understanding of how some of these machines worked in the olden times and how yep. these processors worked can really help us understand 
the design choices that we currently live with and the stuff we do in present day development, whether you're developing on, you know, Windows or Mac or Linux or whether you're developing games or that sort of thing. I think understanding where we come from, it's like reading a history book. It, and right. that's really important. You know, if, if you're a decision maker, you should know the history. Well, if you're a developer, you should know the history. That's a useful thing. And one of the nice things about a lot of this is that it is readily available on either Internet Archive. You can go to archive.org and find entire sets of these books, download it as a PDF, and away you go. I don't think that's illegal because some of these are long since out of print. Um, but you can also like pick it up on eBay if you want the paper copy. There's all kinds of ways you can get some of these classic instructional books. And frankly, we should always be writing instructions this way because when people weren't used to computers, you had to really explain things step by step and actually detail how it works. Now, so much instructions assumes knowledge and it's so mm -hmm. nice to and refreshing to see something that assumed you were coming from a, a zero and builds you up. And I love that. And it's it's just so much fun and it's so good as a developer to do. I just typed in his name while you were talking because every now and then when I do a podcast, there's always something uh -huh. with homework, right? I want to check this out later because it's absolutely. And I, I put it in Google, and I don't know how the algorithm will be for other people, but for me, it shows obviously his Wikipedia page for Jim Butterfield, but then at, underneath yeah. that, a Commodore 64 training tape full length, an hour yes. and 56 minutes. I've seen I it. want. <laughs> I want to watch that so bad. I so, yeah. I have I have dreams of doing a cover of that video on my channel, where I basically just do everything Jim Butterfield does. Like I want that setup. I want that studio. It's it's so it's so cheesy and fun. Um, so did you like, subconsciously mention that because you want people to hold you to it, which is going to like yes, make you actually do. do. It? Come back good, if I really. haven't done it in a year. Let me know because yeah. I, I I definitely want to do a Veronica explains seventies eighties style video. <laughs> I think Complete that's gonna be like a lot of fun. Kind of a filter over the the camera or the in post or something to make lots it of star wipes and <laughs> the whole. Oh my thing. gosh, that that would be so great. Um, it's gonna be fun. So one of the things I think might be you know, bringing it back to home lab. I, I think there's yes. several things here that are, that are important. So um, I'll just give you an example. So for me, I have a backup share on my uh, TrueNAS for, you know, backups, obviously. It's mm -hmm. not at the only place my backups go, but this isn't your normal backups directory. This isn't for like all my business stuff or any of that. It's just one-off things. And I, I did a video a while back about playing older computer games. And when I did that video, I bought older computer games from eBay. And the first thing I would do anytime one of those games came in is I would create an ISO image of the CD-ROM or a disc image if it's a disc, because being a retro game collector, I know about disc rot. I know about these Absolutely. things that are a really big problem. So now on TrueNAS, you know, with, with checksums and all of that, I have backups. So I, I bought both Doom games and all the Wizardry games. Because um, I'm just crazy about that series. Check out that series by Surtech if anyone is interested. They're they're just so great. Don't don't look. I mean, you're not going to get good graphics. I mean, we're talking early '80s here, but um, they were way ahead of their time. Anyway, um, 
archiving everything is kind of what I, I knew I had to do. As soon as I started ordering these games for the video, I, I wanted to make sure that I retained them because I don't know if the floppy disks are, are going to work tomorrow or CD-ROMs. We thought they were eternal. They're really not. There's a shelf life issue here. So um, one of the things that could be important for home labbers, if you get into retro computing, then you might, you need a place to, to make sure you keep these images and the operating systems because that stuff is really hard to find. Absolutely. That's, I do the same thing with, I, anytime I, I acquire a retro game, um, whether it, you know, pretty much in any sort of capacity, I, I, I do make an ISO or a ROM copy or, you know, like these sorts of things. I, I try to save that stuff mm -hmm. because, you know, you never know what you're going to find and you never know what you're going to lose. And, right. and it's, it's always tragic when like you, <clears throat> You see your floppy of, you know, something you worked on 20 years ago. And it's like, oh, I'm glad I found this. Now, make a copy of it now. Be, do copy that floppy. Because, yeah, do, do do that. Because Absolutely. you're going to lose it. <laughs> it will die. Gonna lose it. And, and it's, it's so, it it is, it's it's an eternal challenge in retro. But it, it is also a good practice for regular life, too, where, you know, it's the same, you know, test your backups. You know, check them, make sure they're working. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's extremely oh, yeah. important. And, you know, with retro gaming, luckily when you test your backup, it's playing video games, which is fun. <laughs> and, you know, I'll give you a, an actual example of this that, that happened to me. Because um, I do the same thing, first of all. I have, um, I, I was trying to look up my collection and see, oh, I, I have it here. So I have over 1,100 physical games in my collection right now, um, which I'm actually looking at my, my account on... Um, pricecharting.com, which is where I, I keep track of this, um, probably over 11 to 50. So I always download a, you know, a ROM copy as well, because it, it's easier to play. You don't have to worry about the save battery dying or anything like that. And you can make sure that it works. But I, I before I did that, I, I kind of had like a, a, an issue that came up where I had, a, I was a fan of well, I'm still a fan of Mario, obviously, who isn't? So I was, I was playing Super Mario All-Stars, and then, you know, I was playing it on a really powerful computer being emulated, and the game ran terribly. Like, it was just sluggish. It's like the whole system is having a hard time playing this game. And I know that some of these games are hard to play because, you know, they had something going on. Maybe the emulation isn't perfect. But then later on, a couple of years later, because I just assumed you couldn't play Super Mario All-Stars, you couldn't emulate it, which didn't sound right, but I couldn't get it to work. But then one day I'm like, I'll just redownload it. Why? Why not? Right. And it works fine. And then I realized I had maybe some bits flipped in the ROM or maybe some bit rot happened. Um, I didn't have checksums or TrueNAS back then. So th that's really important when you have, when you're archiving, that you have something that can actually scrub the data because... Unless you're trying to play through each of your games, like constantly, by the time you get through your whole collection, it's time to retire from work because, you know, how many decades have passed at that point? You can't play your old games. And the same with software, too. I mean, you go to load it. Is it going to work? I don't know. Um, it may not. So it's really important to um, keep track of that and, and make sure that things work and they're tested. But you can't test everything yourself if you have data that needs to be consumed like media. Um, that's a lot harder. I, I do love TrueNAS for this. They they do a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. um, using, uh, I, I do, I have ZFS set up 
for my retro collection and I, I do check it frequently, but then I, I do physical tests to play through the games because if I didn't, I think I would go insane from too much work. Right. <laughs> and so I, I, it, right? I justify it with myself of, oh, I'm, I'm testing the backup. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Absolutely. That's sometimes that's the only way I'm going to get time away to just play a game is if I justify this. Oh, I'm just testing the backup. I'm just testing the backup. Yeah. I'm just um, testing the backup. <laughs> yeah, that that's the same same here totally. Um so yeah, even though this isn't the retro gaming episode, I I come from that angle because I have more experience with it, but when it comes to getting started with these, do you have any tips cuz I'm just kind of curious being so late getting into this. I I mean, I did have the uh, Pentium 3 that I mentioned, I, I at one point had a DOS computer. I wish I still had it that I was playing around with, but I, I kind of missed all of this. So sure. for someone like me, uh, do you have any tips for getting started? Well, with retro computing in general, um, you know, it, it, unlike retro gaming, where I think with retro gaming, you know, the it's a popular enough hobby to where um, it's been written about like how to acquire games and all that, but, or how to acquire systems and, and, mm -hmm. you know, peripherals and these sorts of things. Retro computing is a little different because a lot of the things I've picked up over the years, I actually got from businesses mm. and that's a different kind of take. So like with retro computing as you know, like let's take Apple as an example. This is a, a reasonably, common thing I see. A company clears out an old IT closet and they find an Apple II or an old, oh, man. like a Mac 128 or a 512, you know, something that was somebody's machine for a number of years sat on their desk, they used it, and then they upgraded at some point to like a 486 or a win you know, when Windows 95 came out, that was one of the big <laughs> ones. At that point, a lot of these older machines got thrown in a closet and a lot of businesses still have them. So, you know, I always tell people, um, if you know anybody who works at like a building that went through <laughs> any sort of like has been the same business since 1980, ask them to look in the closet because <laughs> you might yeah. find some gems there. Um, but then beyond that, what I recommend a lot of is emulation, 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 emulation to learn what you like and what you don't, because there's so much out there that looks cool when you see it on YouTube, or it looks cool when you're having, um, when, when you see the games and stuff, but like if you're trying to get into the computer side of it, the the day-to-day -day tasks or the the home lab, the networking devices together, you know, some of the um, the retro, the day-to-day -day retro experience, it's a good thing to try it before you buy it because, you know, like a Commodore 64 that's been recapped and is ready to go. I mean, it's going to set you back at least 400 American. Um and then you have to buy a disk drive, which is going to set, if it's in good shape, it might set you back 50 to $100. Um, and it this stuff piles up really quick. And then I, I always hate to hear that, like, I bought a Commodore 64 and the disk drive and a modem and all these things, and I couldn't do anything with it because I wasn't into it. It's a tragedy. Yeah, we don't that, is, that. that is sad, for sure. And so it's, like, emulate it quite a bit before you get started. That's what I did with the Amiga. Um, I only just got my first Amiga in the last 
six months. And so, because I always wanted one growing up because I, I liked tracker music. I liked the games for them, but my parents wouldn't buy one for me. I finally got one, but only after emulating it long enough to know I wanted to commit to the investment because it is an investment. You know, there's, there's money spent here. Um, and luckily a lot of these emulators are open source. They're free. You can on Linux, you can, they're just, a. Uh, in, in the repo and ready to go. Some of them are even on Flatpak. Um, so there's there's a lot of options there for emulation. Um, Commodore is especially easy to emulate. I haven't tried the Atari computer systems. I know I saw some people in the chat use Atari. Um, so if you've yeah, got any ideas for emulators, you know, let me know because I might want to try them at some point. Um, DOS is reasonably easy to emulate and that one's an easier one to kind of get started with. Uh, there's also free DOS also. Yes. There's also free DOS, which you can actually install on bare metal and it isn't terrible. Um, no, there's a lot of really good options for dipping your toe in the water. And it's the same kind of advice I give to people who are getting started with Linux for the first time is like, expect hiccups. This is new to you. <laughs> you know, like, right. and like, you I know, have to it, adjust jumpers to get the sound to work for yes. this game. But if I want to play this other game, I have to change the jumpers again. Why? Well, that's you how it may, works. You may need to solder. <laughs> right. like, I mean, that's, that was, that was everyday life. It really was. And and I, you know, it, I feel like I have a lot of catching up to do because what, what my goal is, and I, I'll, I'm, I'm going to create a video, um, an updated video of my studio later. The only reason why I'm not doing it now is because I'm going to be re redoing it. I have lumber. I'm going to be like really redecorating this. Um, but part of the room that nobody sees is my retro gaming wall, which is just nothing but old classic game systems. And my goal is to have um, a Tandy, a Commodore 64, and at least one more computer set up on that wall for retro gaming computer games. But to your point, though, uh, some of you listening may not know this. I'm sure you, most of you have heard of RetroPie. for emulating your retro console games, but it also supports DOS games as well. So you can literally get that working. I do have a video on my channel where I, I did do that. So if you look through, you should be able to find it. I don't remember when it was, um, it was a while back and I don't, I didn't create a short URL for it like I did your video, but it was a long time ago. Um, and, and what I did in that video is I got a Pi 400, which for me was a, a great way to kind of get the Commodore 64 experience. Cause at the moment I couldn't find a Commodore 64 and I still haven't because I feel like the Pi 400 is the modern day equivalent of that idea where the keyboard and the computer are built in together and you can hook it up to a TV, although this one has HDMI and then I, I loaded a bunch of DOS games on it. Um, it. It's a fun project to get started. And then if you want to, you know, use the real hardware, um, RetroPie isn't really going to give you any experience that you can translate directly to the hardware. It just makes your games work. But, but that, at that point, you have the images for the games. And then if you want to try an emulator that is Commodore 64 or whatever your platform is specific, then that's probably when I'm, I'm going to assume you'll start to learn the platform better. It, it, that, that absolutely makes sense. And there's a ton of great stuff you can do on the Raspberry Pi with, with retro, um, not only just gaming, but also networking and, and all of that. 
to take it the next step without necessarily doing an investment in not only the monetary investment with retro computers, but also the practical and space investment with retro computers. Oh, yeah. Um, cause <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this stuff takes up a lot of room. <laughs> you know? That's the thing. Um, one thing, one project that I, I haven't dive, dove dived dove dove into myself yet but i'm i'm hoping to at some point is the mister which i if you're unfamiliar it's an fpga ecosystem where people have essentially you know you buy an fpga board and then there's various hats and accessories that people add on to it similar to a, a, a raspberry pi in their ecosystem but with fpga you have a little bit more flexibility in emulating and it's debatable whether it's even emulation at that point, precise, exact timings and, and functionality that was present on the original systems. If you're familiar with the analog um, company, their, you know, super N tier, their analog pocket, or, you know, that's a similar, that's, that's the FPGA. It's the same kind of thing. Um, most of their products anyway. And the Mr. Project includes at least very well working, if not perfect, um, uh, emulation of a lot of retro computers, classic retro computers. Um, I mean, and going back further than, you know, we are right now, like I think I saw one for a PDP 11, um, which, you know, now at this point we're talking like I, my, my great grandpa worked at Univac. We're talking that era, like the big giant mainframey kind of stuff is starting to get emulatable and that's uh now we're talking not only would that be helping you you know recreate some you know connect with some old peripherals but there i start to see some real benefits in your career if you're a developer um working with legacy systems you know like one of the great areas of need for more developers you know everybody focuses on web development or game development mm -hmm. but I, I'm a COBOL dev and I got to tell you, I'm never <laughs> hurting for business. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I don't think you ever will be hurting for business. I mean, I think that's like, pretty much said. <laughs> like it's, it's one of the, and there's always a need for, if not actively maintaining these systems, understanding how they work well enough to help somebody migrate away from these systems. Right. And that's where I see a lot of benefit from a career standpoint, which ultimately I think one of the reasons a lot of people home lab is to further, you know, an ambition in it. And at right. least that's, that's how I got started with it. And so if you're, if that's your goal and you, you know, you want that area of kind of untapped potential, future career legacy systems management and updates are, is a huge area. And, you know, that's where some of these projects like the Mister really start to look exciting because if you can learn, like if you learn how token ring worked, man, you're, <laughs> you're, you can probably do anything in a modern network. <laughs> yeah, the only token ring I, um, you know, follow is, you know, the one ring from Tolkien with all the, oh, okay, sorry, bad joke. Um, Lord of the Rings joke. <laughs> I, had, I had to insert that in there. Um, yeah, I mean, that those are some really good tips. And, you know, some people might think like, well, why is it so hard? Because you said emulatable. Why is it so hard to emulate, you know, something 
way back then when our computers now are hundreds of times faster, however many hundreds of, of times faster. But then you always have to understand too that you're emulating every single CPU cycle, which is gonna add an immense amount of overhead, which is why still to this day, Nintendo 64 is hard to emulate. It People Absolutely. do it. So before anyone writes in, I'll have you know, I have N64 emulation running perfectly. I get it. I, I know you do, but many people don't, and it's not easy, but then it becomes easy, and then these technologies become within reach when they weren't before. And then to your point about legacy systems, I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a feeling you'll probably agree with this, that when you were working on legacy, when it wasn't as legacy, that was harder than nowadays we have all of these technologies and i mean i was just talking about sd cards that you know have terabytes of space and it's not even as big as your fingernail and you have all these different things that you can use raspberry pi emulation that gives you a cutting edge on legacy that people when they were working with that technology when it was new would feel like you were a god if they if you came back then you know 20 30 40 years ago with, with the technology we have now and you're like yeah, I'll just copy that to an SD card. Of what? And how did that happen? Uh, that's so amazing to me that you could take the technology we have now and use it to support technologies of yesteryear in ways that people back then couldn't even do it. Absolutely. No, I'm 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 with you. It's it's really impressive. And and one of the things that I I love about it is it very much reminds me of the the Linux community in how the Linux community, like there, there's so many differing opinions on it, but like everybody's still kind of working toward the same goal. Right. And so much in the modern retro computing scene just reminds me of that where like so much of it's open source. It always was, you know, like, you know, back in, back in the Commodore 64 days, the uh, most things, like the software, a lot of software was public domain. And then you get into Amiga and a lot of software was public domain. And if it wasn't public domain, somebody put it out there <laughs> to where it became right. really available. And the, the culture in that time was, I, I think, more accepting of, of that openness and that collaborative spirit. And I, I really do naturally. In my yes, opinion. I do. I, I, I agree. I think that back then, you know, computing as the concept was much harder to do. And so the people who did it felt accomplished and wanted to share it and wanted to share their, their works and things like that. And now with, you know, smartphones being everywhere and, you know, the barrier to entry being virtually non-existent, um, it's, it, it, I think we've lost a little bit of that in kind of like public understanding of computing. You know, I, I'm reminded right. of something, I, I think it was, I, th I think my grandpa told me this, um, you know, he said, we, we all had to learn how to use a terminal because it was what was there. Right. <laughs> it was what we had. Um, and so like literally anybody who whose job required a computer, which was a fair amount of non-technical people, learned a command line. Yeah, <laughs> that was like, and they yep. did okay. And and I think that that's one of the things that I appreciate so much about retro computing is that it does 
give you a sense that these things were learnable by just about anybody. You know, yeah, absolutely. If, if you have the drive and the determination, you could get it done. And that really does give me hope for what we do in the future with technology, because we can make really cool things that everybody can use, even if it requires a little bit of work on the front end to, you know, get it to a point where everybody can use it. I, I just, it's so inspiring to me and I just love it. Yeah, I love it too. I, I feel like it's, if you look into evolution and biology, it's like we are a tribal species and we've evolved faster than any other species has, but we're still a tribal species. That's why if I see a movie and I think it's awesome, hey, Veronica, you got to check this movie out. It's so cool because I want to share what I enjoy with someone else. And everybody, unless you're a complete introvert, I don't think anybody is truly 100% introverted, maybe close, but they want to share what, what resonates with them with other people. And naturally, when com the computing age comes, we want to do the same thing. We want to share that game that we find so much enjoyment with. We want to um, share this program that has really helped us out. And, you know, there's a lot of stigma around emulation and, and sharing and things like that. And the companies don't want you to do that, obviously. And I'm not advocating for, you know, screwing over companies. But let's be honest, this stuff isn't sold anymore. Um, and right. they made their money. They went bankrupt and all these things. But um, but again, I'm not saying that everybody should just freeload because that's not what I'm saying at all. I feel like emulation keeps history alive. And one of my things is I want to see stigma completely go away about this because it's not about getting everything for free if you look at all the other companies i feel like if a company is still in business today and they had legacy software i feel like they they really owe it to the community to just put it out there for people to download because they've already moved on to other things and how else are you going to enjoy these things so it's and it's almost like either the companies will do the right thing and make their legacy software available or we'll do it for them um, one of us is going to do it. <laughs> it's like, which one do you prefer? It's going to happen whether you like it or not. So either jump on board and, and let's make computing accessible to everyone or, um, well, I mean, it's going to happen. There's nothing we could do about it. But when it comes to emulation, I, I just feel like these companies don't really do a good job. I mean, we had Nintendo with the Wii shut down their download service for downloaded games. So all those games you bought, you can't download. So you better have backups. But if they have the keys to the castle on their end that references your serial numbers being able to play a game because it's mapped to that, and then their service goes under, then your ability to enjoy the software also goes under when your machine dies. I don't think that's okay. I think with emulation, we can keep these things alive. And then we could show future generations what it was like and, and what came before. Um, otherwise, it, everything fades into obscurity. And I don't think that's okay. No, I'm... I'm I'm totally with you. The uh, there there's really something to be said too about the like preserving history and and yeah. understanding like you, you, there's there's a, probably a whole series of videos I could do on why on Windows the main computer drive is called C. Mm -hmm. That's probably like five videos worth. <laughs> oh, and, and and it's funny because a lot of people don't know why that is. It's like, why didn't they go back to A after the the A and B drive went away? <laughs> it's like it's still C to this day. I know there's more to it, but yeah, yeah, no, there's there's a ton to it, and and like again, it's we could, <laughs> I could probably do five hours on the subject, but um, it's it's just understanding that is something you know in twenty years. The people involved with that won't be here anymore in all likelihood. 
And so, right. and, and it, this is the case with just about every paradigm we think of, you know, like uh, we, the x86 processor and understanding what went into machine language on, on, on these processors. Like we need to understand this really deeply now because right. in 20 years, we might not be able to ask. And that's, yeah. that's why in my mind, these company, like, you know, large companies that are, that have a history going back 30 years, 40 years, in some cases, much longer. Um, they, I would love to see more source made available, more comments made available. Um, Cause the comments, the, you know, the details, the, the, the thoughts that went into it, the notes about right. when a certain operating system was being constructed, those are historical documents that are extremely important to us understanding how we got here <laughs> and exactly. how, what, yeah. what we're going to do next. Exactly. I, I was, um, and I, I still, you know, because I research video game history so much, I... Um, I'm going to be setting up a retro gaming channel eventually. I'm not going to even throw a date anymore because every time I do, I, I miss it. But um, to your point, though, on that, I, I've been researching the Nintendo PlayStation. And some people might think, what's a big deal? Well, we'll understand. We didn't have YouTube back then. All we had was newspaper articles, some magazine articles. And there was a lot of what I found is that there's a lot of assumptions made um, for example, they, they say that the Nintendo PlayStation was going to be an, a CD-ROM add-on. It was never going to be that, but every single source says that because what else are they going, going to assume it was going to be? It was an all-in-one unit, but those that news and the interviews and even footage where, they, where these devices are revealed to the public at trade shows is gone too. So we, don't, we didn't have like all this information we had the internet back then sure but we didn't have as much information and nowadays you could say like a sentence you know out loud on the news and it's on twitter 10 seconds later and everyone has a, a clip of it we didn't have that we don't have the historical documents to go back to and some of that stuff is just down to he said she said and the thing is I'm also a fan of music, so I, I just finished watching the Janet Jackson documentary because I'm really into music history also. And I was thinking while I was watching it, how cool would it be if there was a documentary like that that was done by a computer programmer that had built something or created something that revolutionized things and just go through his or her life and just say, hey, how'd you develop this? What did it look like? Show their workstation, show all these different things, and then walk through the development of these older computers and the, the older software, I feel like would be something that would really take off in media. I mean, in Netflix, um, you know, just, just cut me a check for that idea because I, I, I said this out loud. So you need to give me royalties, <laughs> obviously. But how cool would it be to, to get these people to, to make documentaries so that people in the future could say, hey, who is that individual? And let me learn about that person and then see what they did and see their creation come to life. I think that would be awesome. Absolutely. It would be that. And, you know, there's, there's a few, I, I don't have as much time to uh, watch TV now that I'm, I'm making content. Um, yep. <laughs> yep. People, people don't know this, but it's like for every, for every minute you see on a video, it's like an hour of work. 
Mine are getting to be four, somewhere between four and 10 hours of video at this point. It yeah. It's ridiculous. Yep. It's, 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 it is a lot of work, um, which it does. It, it takes away from your time for things like um, sleeping and <laughs> watching right? television. And so um, it, I, there, it's rare when I actually get to like sit down and actually watch something, but um, there's one, I forget what service it's on, but it's, called the Commodore story. And I've been meaning to check it out. Um, but one that, I mean, it's not specifically related to uh, home lab, but one of the it, a very interesting YouTube video, which is freely available is um, I think it's called trackers, the sound of 16 bit. And hmm. I, it's, it is very well worth it. If you're interested in, some of the history of especially Amiga and where Amiga happened and who was using it and all that. But it's also for me as a musician, it's just absolutely thrilling because like truly tracker music is the like, cause if you don't know tracker music, if you played retro games in the, you know, late eighties to the nineties, the music you were listening to, there's a good chance it was tracker music. So, you know, classic game music, tracker music. And that's some of the reason I became a musician was because I loved video game music. And that is just something mm -hmm. that always stuck with me. And that, that documentary was just so well done. I'd love to see more stuff like that, especially from creators. Like I know, um, to name check another one, uh, Macintosh Librarian did an excellent video on uh, the history of MEC, M-E-C-C, which you might know from the Oregon Trail games. And so it's it's very, it was her video was very well done. It's cute. It was funny. Um, she has a little Macintosh sidekick that's, that interjects and it's very fun. Oh, that's um, so, cool. so very well worth checking out too, if you're into retro stuff. She's She's got a great channel. So I'm going to just throw out a challenge to the audience. Um, try to, uh, safely, obviously, but but try to incorporate retro tech into your home lab in some clever way. Um, you know, I don't, I don't care if you're using a Commodore 64 as your SSH, you know, machine to get, get onto your servers and, you know, maybe they'll watch your video and get it online so they can maybe get an SSH session or something to other systems. How cool would that be? Right. But I'll leave it up to the audience. Um, even if you build a new computer into an older case or um, have a console TV as your monitor to your, um, you know, true NAS server, I'm just making up stuff here. But I think it'd be a lot of fun uh, to just see what the community comes up with and, and tag us uh, the home lab show and just show us, basically what you've come up with. And if you already have something, absolutely show us that. And um, yeah, so where, where would you like people to go? Where would you like to point people to on your end? On my end? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, the, I'm hoping my next video, um, it's not quite ready yet, but I'm, I'm, I just recently acquired a Model M keyboard, um, which was in various states of ickiness. So I'm cleaning it up and I'm going to do a video hopefully next week about getting it working on a modern computer and, you know, remapping keys and, you know, just, just kind of having some fun. So that's going to be, that's going to be awesome. I'd say my, the only thing I'm promoting right now is the channel. So Veronica explains 
And um, the URL, I do have a short URL for this. It's please subscribe.be. So it spells out please subscribe, but it's please subscribe.be. <laughs> We're doing some masterclass uh, domain stuff here with my oh. Linux.video and Linux learn Linux.link and then you, yours. And um, yeah, this is fun. It is a lot of fun. Um, and one thing I would say is, you know, just about that, that challenge about the home lab is so many of these computers are capable of serial connections to more modern equipment. And there's a lot of fun that can be had with that. You know, it, it's, it's, it, whether it's the user port or, you know, which you can do with some funky adapters and some fun stuff, but then, um, on some other computers, you have RS-232 connections, there, there's a lot there that can be explored and still used. And I mean, I still in my basement for my um, my primary storage server, I still have a terminal plugged into it. <laughs> I just power oh, wow. on the terminal and start typing. Um, it's it's dark down there, so the terminal is actually quite convenient. Um, so it's it, these things they they still have some some life left in them in a lot of cases. So I think it's always fun to check out. It absolutely is. Yeah, your channel's awesome. I'm a fan of it. So definitely subscribe. I have actually Thank subscribed you. as well. And the only other thing I'll plug, because I think everyone knows where I am on this podcast by now. I mean, Learn Linux TV, if you are just watching or listening to this podcast for the very first time with this episode. But then also um, my book, Mastering Ubuntu Server 4th Edition, is complete. I don't know exactly when they're going to pull the trigger. I have a lot of people asking me. I really don't know. Um, it, it literally could be any minute, any day, any hour. Um, I'll just I'll end up getting an email. Usually digital comes out first and then the print copies have to circulate a bit. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I've archived the files. It's off my hard drive. It's in their hands. So UbuntuServerBook.com, if anyone wants to pre-order that book, it's going to be out like it's imminent. Like any time now, it's going to be available. I had a lot of fun writing it. So definitely check it out. And one of the things I did in that book this time was I, um, any any videos that I already had on the channel, I also, I also created some new ones. I, I literally put um, URLs to the videos if they're relevant about the chapter in the at the end of the chapter with a linux.video slash and then whatever it is link so it's really easy. So I feel like the, one of the cool things about this book that uh, you guys will find out is that it really does kind of, uh, it's a one-to-one -one relationship with the channel. It doesn't require the, the YouTube channel, it's a book. But if you are the type of person that likes learning in two different ways, like something to read and something to watch, it gives you both. So um, definitely check that out. Uh, again, UbuntuServerBook.com. So thank you so much for being on. This was a, a really fun episode. Oh, this was a ton of fun. This, this was fantastic. And thank you for having me. I, I so yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, and come back sometime. Oh, I will. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you again.